And welcome back to the Queermo Cast bonus episode edition. Today we have an extra special movie club edition of the Queermo Cast. And oh, I am KJ, one of your hosts. And also over here, wait, wait, where's Shim Sham? We don't have Shim Sham today. What are we going to do? Oh, wait, who's here? Who's this? It's me. Oh, my goodness. Who are you? I'm Jason. Jason Belden, and I am your uh, co-host for the day. I'm your partner. I'm your, you know, platonic lesbian roommate. Uh, um, yeah. Whatever our parents think uh, our relationship is. <laughs> um, anyone who might be listening, uh, I'm so, so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan and listener of this pod. And what an honor to, to fill in for Shim Sham. Uh, Big shoes to fill. Big shoes to fill. <laughs> well, Jay also uh, secretly just really, really wants to have a podcast. So anytime you get to practice. It's true. It's true. It's my <laughs> dream. I'm I'm such a podcast consumer. Um, you know, yes. your yours is, you know, great, but it is one of at least 15 that I listen to on a regular basis. <laughs> and ours does only come out every other week. So it's not it's not quite as regular as some of the others that you listen to. Um, but we are just coming off of Twin Cities Pride here in Minneapolis. Today was the big Pride event day. Unfortunately, we weren't able to make it to that, so we did all of our priding yesterday. What did we do? Oh, my God. Well, you know, we didn't go to the big corporate-sponsored Pride, but we went to Pride our way. Like, uh, we started with a drag brunch. Uh, we... <laughs> We also went to the uh, local community organized Pride um, down at Powderhorn Park, and um, it was just such a good vibe, like sunshine, good music, queers of every shape, size, and, uh, and, and creed and color, just, you know, all gathering together to, to, to just hang out and chill, and, you know, we, we did a little shopping, we got some cool prints and, and some handmade jewelry and stuff. Um, supporting the locals, supporting the local queer scene, which is one of my favorite things to do here in the area. Um, and yeah, you, you, you mentioned, uh, corporate pride and really, uh, this year I, I personally just did, did not have any interest in going into the larger like pride sanctioned events as much as I, I think that it's beautiful that we have corporate sponsorship and that there are people who want to pour money into pride. I think that sometimes it's easier for pride to become, uh, it's something something different than what it was intended to be, and I I do I have sort of a moral quandary sometimes about pride in general about the the, the event. So it was nice to be able to go to something a little bit more community driven, something that didn't cost five hundred dollars to like get a table and just like hang out for a little bit. Yeah, it was it was like just so so incredibly like nice to be around people like that. Um, and, and it's, it's not about, you know, how exactly you choose to celebrate pride. Like, like you, you just celebrate how you want to. And there was, there was individuals on every like level going, going to this, uh, this park pride that we went to. Like, you know, you, you, you had everything from like, 
leather harness, uh, like ravers on the stage. And then, you know, you had like just individuals hanging out, reading a book, like just wanting to be around the energy. Um, yeah, so it doesn't matter how you how you celebrate pride. Um, just get out there and do it because we unfortunately, you know, time times are are terrible right now. Politically, um, our community is under attack in so many ways, um, and <laughs> it's it, it's unfair that you know pride is once again taking place like amidst a world that is on fire. Um, but not celebrating and not showing up is kind of what the other side wants. They want to scare us away. Um, they want to intimidate us. And I don't know, it was, it was just nice. Like we're, I want to come into this energy with, with that, come into this episode with that energy, um, is what I meant to say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's so true. The world has been on fire the last couple of prides. Not that it wasn't on fire before that. Um, and we are. We are. We're, we're at a time where showing up and, and, and celebrating and also being involved and being informed is sort of becoming entry-level expectations for <laughs> anybody who has a social justice or activist mindset. And frankly, being queer kind of automatically throws you into the throes of that. Um, and with that, we also just would like to remind you, we do have resources for getting involved down in the show notes. We wanted to get that out of the way early on so we can get into our movie club. We do have ways for you to access abortion funds, for you to get involved with different organizations, where to donate, how to uh, donate your time as well as your money. So check those out down below. It's going to be a wild and bumpy ride coming up here in the future, but that does not mean we have to stop fighting. It doesn't mean we have to freeze up. And if you are feeling like you're freezing up, like you're frozen, like you can't figure out what to do, possibly take some time from social media, take a t- little time away. If you are, if you are no longer feeling like you have actionable steps, there is a chance that you might just be oversaturating yourself and you're no longer informing yourself. You're no longer, <laughs> you're no longer, uh, you're, you're no longer feeling connected to the things that you want to be doing. So you are allowed to take breaks. No one person can do it all by themselves. So check out those links down below. Email us with anything that you feel like you want to say or ideas that you have or things that have worked for you. Uh, if you run an organization that you think we should be talking about, reach out. We are thequeermocast at gmail.com. And that is in the show notes as well. But... Now it is time for us to jump into our core topic of the day, which is our movie club, our very first ever movie club episode. And this month, for the month of Pride, we decided to watch the iconic, the legendary, the historic documentary, Paris is Burning, which is something that you and I have watched together a lot. Yes, this is easily, easily one of my top favorite things to watch ever. Um, Tell me about that. I think we watched this together, like, when we first started dating, like, very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my God. Where to begin? This movie is the, the... If you are gay, if you are a part of this community, this 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 documentary is absolutely essential viewing. Um, so many references, so many... Uh, so much slang, so much style um, just comes from this documentary, um, it is, it captures a time and a place that, you know, it, 
it's just incredible and so so rich with with queer history um like you cannot talk about this film without talking about the entire tapestry of queer rights queer trans you know representation like race relations and and i just also wanted to say that it's it's kind of you know like tricky coming into this you and i are both white of that um you know we are members of the queer community for sure but so much of paris's burning comes from a non-white perspective mm -hmm. so i have to have to put that out there plain and simple right at the beginning and we're going to talk about that that's a big that's a big part of this is that um there's there's a very rich history surrounding this and it is important to remember that a lot of the things that we now hold on uh hold near and dear in the queer community did come out of communities of color and while it is uh there is a community-driven uh, idea behind more people embracing certain cultures. Uh, appreciation and celebration can become appropriation, and that's also a really important thing to be considering as we move forward and progressing. So let's just talk a little bit about the the film. The film was a documentary that came out, I believe, in 1991, was it? I what I wrote in my notes. Um, but it was filmed in the late 80s, and it was filmed right around the time that Madonna's Vogue came out and the entire concept of voguing was becoming somewhat more mainstream, but f specifically mainstream for a very specific white audience that maybe understood it in, a, in one way, even though it was from a much richer, richer cultural heritage than it was led to believe in that one four-minute Madonna music video. Well, you know, one of the, one of the things that I learned just recently is about you know Jenny Livingston the director mm -hmm. um she shot a lot of this footage she kind of put a lot of this together um and thinking about her go going into these ball communities um and getting these queens to talk to her the way that they do in the film um is is really cool and you know I wonder I wonder if you knew anything about her as a director or like her experience making the the film it's it's interesting to me considering she is a white woman mm -hmm. like you know that's another like interesting part of this Go ahead and tell me more Yeah like the, the conversations that that the queens are having they're very like open and and they ex they just expose themselves like their story like their family history um you know their their experience with health you know just deeply deeply personal you know conversations um that it just must they must have trusted her um and yeah like it's it's just incredibly cool to me that this this documentary you know while it was filmed over like a couple years like it does represent a whole time and a place that's just kind of like a snapshot in time um and as much as we do learn about them there's still so many unanswered questions about like some of these performers and you i i wish that there was footage following them you know years later too just to know kind of what happened to them 
I mean, I agree. It's it's um I was I was just looking up uh cuz Jenny Livingston I was looking up some of the other things that she had been that that she has worked on since uh since Paris is Burning and a lot of her uh, documentaries there was Hotheads and Who's the Top which were about queer topics as well. So Jenny Livingston was very focused on the queer community in her her documentary work, but um it's it's so true. There was uh that it's there's 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 a disconnect there sometimes where you think about the the crew and the people who are working on this film and the individuals who were the subject of the film and mm-hmm. how much of how the film was presented was what the people who were giving the interviews expected how much of that I think a lot of that would be I haven't seen a whole lot about those individuals speaking up or speaking out about that and that would be really interesting to get into at a later time because the the movie itself the film itself is set in 1980s New York in the ballroom scene. And the ballroom scene has a really, really rich history in the United States. The ball scene actually dates back to masquerade balls that were known as drags in 19th century the United States. Uh, They started largely in places like Washington, D.C., New York City, Philadelphia, so mostly on that upper northeastern coast of the United States. And... Drag existed before the, the the concept of drags, um, but it was called something different. It's been called something different through all cultures. And I just wanted to take a second to make it really clear that drag queen culture is not the first and only time that gender nonconforming folks have existed. Um, it's been uh, really heavily publicized in the last decade by RuPaul's Drag Race, a very specific style of drag, a very specific style of a masquerade. But it's existed for a very long time in a lot of various forms. And uh, one of those forms was here in the United States where uh, balls started to grow out of these drags. And at the Hamilton Lodge in Washington, D.C., there were actually integrated drag shows during a time of heavy segregation in the United States. However, just because they were integrated didn't mean that racism wasn't involved. There were uh, many uh, people of color who participated in in these balls, these masquerades, and wouldn't place or they wouldn't get prizes. They weren't seen as actual contenders or contestants. Uh, So racism played a really big part in that, and that's part of where the ball culture that we see depicted in Paris is Burning comes from. It was people of color saying, okay, well, if we're not going to be treated fairly inside of your specific part of this subculture, we're going to go create our own. We're going to go do it ourselves. Um, And white queers do have a very long history uh, much like white feminists have a very long history of negating the experiences and leaving out people of color and leaving out other other cultures and other ethnicities. So it's important for us to understand that coming into the film, that this culture grew up and out of more discrimination from within our very own community. So there's, it's, it's, yeah. it's still ever present. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I... I just, you know, completely acknowledge that, you know, the experience of, you know, whether it's the the people that are featured in the documentary or the experience of the director who, you know, I don't know her experience. I can't, like, I did, you know, kind of put her in a box a little bit with some of my statements. But, you know, just, I just wanted to acknowledge that, like, this body of work is so, we're so lucky to have this as a piece of, of art, like, like it's available on streaming, it's available a lot of different ways, um, and you know we're talking about it today, uh, you know, 32 years after it came out, um, 
you know, it's, it's lasted this long because it represents something so, so important, you know, which is all the things that you just said is getting to see the experience of these people of color who are queer, who are trans, who have completely, a lot of them have been disowned from their families. Um, you know, they, they, a lot of them have lived in poverty their entire lives. Um, and being a part of the ball community was just that for them. It was, it was a place to call home. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting for you and I, um, who, you know, both of us came out young and, um, we are, we, we came out to like mid Midwestern, you know, middle-class white families. And, you know, again, again, I'm, I'm stepping on my, uh, stepping over my own tongue here, put trying to <laughs> speak about others' experience. But, um, my point is we weren't disowned. We weren't kicked out necessarily. Um, and, and we had a lot of privileges that folks that uh, folks in this documentary did not. Um, so yeah, that's, that's important to, to acknowledge. And the thing, the, the, the thing I was trying to get at here was more about the, the, the ways that these, that these balls brought people in was, it was, was exactly what, what you were just saying. It's the entire concept of a house. The, the idea that these houses that were built up by prominent, prominent members of the community in the ball scene, and this movie focuses specifically on the ball scene in New York City. The ball scene exists all up and down the East Coast. It exists in other places as well um, throughout the, the, the United States, but the, the, the premier houses are mostly on the East Coast. And in New York City, some of the prominent houses that they focus on in this film are... Um, the House of La Beja, the gorgeous House of Gucci, the House of Balenciaga, the House of Dupree, the House of Ninja, the House of Extravaganza. And they were often named after extravagance or these the this this idea of elegance or often just directly named after high fashion companies. Um which is uh, specifically dig digging into like, this is a world that is denied us, so we will make it our own. This is a world we are not invited into, so we will find a way to bring yeah. it to ourselves. Um, if I believe it, I could be it, um, is yeah, a big exactly. part of it. And and a, a line that I love from, from the movie is, you know, them saying like, like, look, if I had the same opportunity you did, I could be you as well, mm -hmm. but I could do it better than you. And look, I can look just like you and I can bring it to a level that you're not even, <laughs> you can't even conceive of um, because we have this, this queer experience that, that like we, <laughs> we just get to create our own like image of what, what it would be if we had those things. Exactly. And uh, the, the houses are all built on, on legacy, but they're also built upon the idea of family. It's uh, the, the, the whole idea of uh, of uh, a house is built around some type of patriarch or matriarch, a father or a mother, most commonly a mother, and usually that is a a a, a tr what's the word a, a lateral move from blood family to chosen family, and somebody who is a a confidant, somebody who is a guide who can give you give you a roof over your head, and also you were a part of something. You got to feel like you were a part of something after you were denied an, a family somewhere else, after that family either abandoned you or forced you out, or you chose to leave due to, due, due to persecution. You had a place to belong. And 
for an arguably very marginalized community in the United States, that was a huge thing and a huge, like, major step forward for a lot of members of our community. I'm, I just cannot stop laughing because I'm thinking of the, uh, <laughs> the part where, was it Pepper LaBeja? Um, in some of her uh, her house where she, she was explaining, like, I am the mother. <laughs> like, And then she takes off her top and then the, they, they just start kind of suckling at her, her, her bare nipples and saying, look, she even nurses us. She She's nurses us. Mother. She's our mother. I know. It's, and and the, the, the ball scene in, uh, in, in New York City was actually started by Crystal LaBeja, who was Pepper LaBeja, who's in the film her drag mother, her, or, or her house mother. And uh, Crystal LaBeja is often said to be sort of the co-founder of the ballroom scene in New York City. Um, there's also another film called The Queen, which uh, depicts Crystal LaBeja's life, um, which is another film I'd like to do at a future date and one that I suggest you all go and watch if you can. How have I not seen that? Um, I, it's it's pretty good. I, I watched it. Watch I watched it in college, but that was quite a while ago. That would have been when I was like twenty two, twenty three. It's so like a decade ago. Yeah, and if it wasn't Pepper LaBeja who took her top off, I I I'm probably wrong <laughs> on exactly who that was, but um, <laughs> iconic moment, iconic behavior for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean the 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 thing about the uh, about the the film is that the entire time we're dancing around a lot of really really tough cultural issues. We're talking about not not just families disowning members of their own family, but also uh, societal and systemic persecution. But instead of it feeling like the whole film centers around these dark, dark moments in people's lives, we get to watch thriving queer people living a life that they really enjoy and navigating the world in a way that is both exciting is both very moving and is also very very nerve-wracking we'll get into some of that later but it's it's an interesting tapestry and a, a very well well-rounded especially for the time depiction of a group of individuals living their life in a very specific way and i am curious for you what are some of the th what what are some of the main takeaways from the 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 film as a whole before we kind of deep dive into it i think the immediate phrase that came to mind was educating the children <laughs> <laughs> you see this happening the uh, documentary spends a lot of time <laughs> explaining what drag is and what ball uh you know culture is um what reading is no it's it's true there are there are a lot of ways that the film uh very 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 clearly is meant to like hold your hand as if you have never heard of these things before and the reality is is that most people seeing the film unless they're looking at it through a 2022 lens you probably hadn't heard those things before you had never heard of reading you'd never heard of voguing ex except in the in the exception of the madonna video which does feature voguing but kind of not really um i know you mentioned the madonna vogue thing did you know a fun fact about me I was born May 31st, 1990, and the number one song on the chart was Madonna Vogue. Yep. And when I was born in 1989, it was like a prayer. So, Ooh. Yep. We're so, bonded by the Madonna. By the Madonna. The Madonna. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. 
I, much like most things, there's always this conversation about mainstreaming something versus keeping it a little bit more niche and deeply held. And there are, there are conversations to have on both sides of that argument. The reality is, is that when we bring something more into mainstream culture, there's more of a chance of it being co-opted by people who don't really understand it and don't really, aren't 100% in good faith coming into it, wanting to learn about it. They just want to profit off of it. And I'm not saying that's what Madonna was doing at all, Mm -hmm. but there were people in that industry who definitely saw an opportunity to make money off of it and definitely tried to run with it as much as possible. And that's why when when, when I bring that up, it's like you see the authentic way that it's depicted in the film, and then you see... Like in Pose, for example, a more modern retelling of ballroom culture, the television series Pose, um, you see how it was sort of a flash in the pan in a lot of ways. People were into it. Uh, Damien got to go and teach it at the YMCA. And then as quickly as people were interested in it, they move on to something Mm -hmm. else. And it is, and they even show that kind of in the film, how voguing became this kind of cultural phenomenon uh, throughout the early 90s. And then we know past the film, we know that just as quickly as capitalism sucks something up into its tractor beam, it's just as quickly to move on to something else when it's no longer profitable for it. So I think that there's good things about something being mainstreamed and something having more attention given to it. I think that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And also, there is sort of this like protection of like, but this is also still... Not yours. This is ours yeah. or this is theirs. And it's important for us to understand that just because we know about something or that we love something doesn't mean we have ownership over it. Yeah, it's the whole commodification mm-hmm. of the queer community. Um, you know, and we see it today. It's it's happening right now. I mean, pride, <laughs> pride, like commercialism, like we kind of talked about off the top. Like, and um, yeah, these these queens in Paris is burning were, were not immune to that. Like some of them even felt like being, being filmed, like letting the cameras into like their balls, their, their homes was uh, in a way taking advantage of them. And, and it's, we'd be remiss not to mention that like there was some financial controversy Mm -hmm. after, you know, the, this film came out and um, I don't know the full extent of it, but I do know that, a lot of the principal featured uh, performers got got paid very little or you know a lot less than they were promised um and it left a lot of them feeling like just like the, the madonna vogue thing like we're just a commodity like but you know part of what's so important about this is to is why it's so, so essential viewing like this is the authentic version of pride to me like this is the authentic queer experience that we get to see in in this film and it's so so amazing to watch it is and if you want to donate to funds for uh communities of color queer communities of color we do also have ways to do that because again when you watch this film the people who get paid for it are not the people in it a lot of the time it's the people who created it and so that's that's another thing too is that like um Moving, moving the money around a little tiny bit when you got a little extra. But again, <clears throat> we, we want to stick stick with the film a little bit. But the film does bring up a lot of really interesting and also important points about who, who owns culture, who owns cultural phenomenons, and who has, who has the rights to, you know, 
profit off of something, who has the rights to, uh, yeah, to, to, to utilize something for their benefit. And I think we are having much more interesting cultural conversations about that now. And a film like this still existing gives us an opportunity to have that conversation in a more nuanced way because there is living, breathing, documented proof that these humans were there, they existed, they were real, and their stories are both interesting, inspiring, important, and also sometimes just really just the the, the day-to-day living is exactly what you would expect people to just be doing while they're living. Um, so it's a really, it's a, I think it is an important cultural piece that <clears throat> carries a lot of really interesting baggage with it. Um, I, I just, yeah, it's that, sorry, I'm a little speechless because this, this documentary is so rich with, with topics to talk about and it deals with such massive cultural conversations like, you know, gender affirming surgery, uh, you know, uh, AIDS, you know, murder and these incredibly heavy like shifts in the tone throughout the documentary. But what's, you know, what it, what is like so magical about it is those, those moments of pure happiness that we see in the fun and the, um, just life living, giving, (laughs) um, the, the wild behavior that they, they show on the street. And, um, you know, we, we've, we've grown like so, so much since, you know, this time, but we're still facing these issues Mm -hmm. in a very real way. No, we are. And, um, and the problem is, is that when a certain group gets more rights, more privileges, or, or becomes more a part of the cultural zeitgeist, um, it can become easy to forget that those rights can disappear in an instant. Um, And that is something that I think a lot of, particularly like you said at the beginning, white queers do need to understand that just because we might've gotten ours in some ways, doesn't mean everybody got theirs. And also that what we have is not necessarily permanent as we are seeing around the country. And also it's a much bigger issue than the one that involves only you. And that's why I think this film as much as I don't always agree with everything that RuPaul does have to say, I do think that, that, that RuPaul is saying that this is sort of one of those cultural things that if you want to be a prominent figure in the queer community, this is one of those semi-required pieces of pieces of cultural viewing. And, and I think that, you know, by... Because we watch it almost every year, partially because there is something... Something about it that, that always brings me back. It's it's a nice reminder about things. It always inspires me to go out and find new things to watch that deal with similar issues. But I always come back to this documentary. And it also has a whole lot wrapped up inside of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about Dory and Corey. <laughs> I did a little bit of research for you if you'd like to, I would love to. hear the story of Dory and Corey. I... I you know, I don't know like how much you know about this. Um, there was a My Favorite Murder about this. I definitely listened to the um, My Favorite Murder about it. I've heard it. And it's kind of this legendary story about uh, this body that was found in the closet in Dorian Corey's drag, uh, you know, drag wardrobe. Um, Who was Dorian Corey? Let's start there. <laughs> well, I will start with quoting Dorian because she, uh, in the film, she says, you've made a mark on the world if you just get through it. 
if a few people remember your name. And then she says, if you shoot an arrow real and it goes real high, well, good for you. Um, and I'm definitely misquoting her, but Dorian Corey was a the, the mother of the house of Corey. Um, she was a famous drag performer in as early as the 60s. Um, she was in pageants. She made a lot of money doing it. She was really successful. Um, she was also black and trans. Um, she got her gender uh, affirming top surgery. Um, she was living as a, a trans woman, um, you know, in these these ball communities. And like by the time we catch up with her in Paris is Burning, um, it's the late 80s. Uh, she is a little bit of the kind of, uh, what do you want to say, like just mature. She's <laughs> She's been around the block, a little jaded, uh, a little, she's got kind of a raspy voice and she's just kind of putting on her makeup, telling telling what um sorry our door just shut i know that was that was that was that was great <laughs> but um basically the the true crime element of uh of her story um kind of dorian doesn't want us to tell the story oh my god that was the ghost of dorian <laughs> uh anyway continue um sorry girl sorry i'm gonna tell it because it's a really interesting story but essentially uh it was about three years after the film came out um, so it's May of 93, um, and that was shortly before uh, Dorian actually passed away. Of uh, She passed away at uh, 56 years old, um, and it was AIDS-related complications. Um, but essentially, in her final days, uh, she you know tells her, her dear friend and caretaker, Lois, uh, that you know, she can keep a lot of the costumes and jewelry that she has uh, stored up in her home. Um, so uh, after Dorian passed, Lois, you know, and a lot of other queens and, and people in the community uh, were going through a lot of the wardrobes and, and finding all these incredible garments and, and boas and like shoes and, and jewelry from from all these decades of, of pageants and uh, drag performances um god i wish we could just like see i wish we could go through one of those <laughs> wardrobes uh. um but they pull out a plastic garment bag um and that was very very heavy and almost so heavy that uh, they couldn't really lift it and they pull it out and they're like well, what's in here what kind of what kind of gar garment could this be <laughs> i'm sorry that's this is not funny um but essentially, they cut open the bag, and a very uh, putrid smell emitted from inside. And they immediately uh, backed away, and they were like, "That can't be good." Um, and uh, then they they did call the cops. The cops needed to co come in and in investigate, um, which is kind of interesting. Like, obviously, like police is a, di a whole different conversation, and even you know. Even today, the, the queer community, the black community, our relationship with the police is is fraught um, because they they don't help us. They it, it's you know it's true now. It was true then. Like you know, like members of our community, they're not looked after the same way by the police. So, mm -hmm. um, all right. So inside the bag, they found a partially mummified body of a man in a fetal position with a bullet hole in his head. Uh, the cops did consider Lois a suspect for a short time, 
um, because her fingerprints were on the garment bag. Um, but she was like, yeah, my fingerprints are on the garment bag because I had to cut, like pull it out and look at it and cut it open. Um, motherfuckers. <laughs> so um, basically, the police determined the body was inside the bag for at least 15 years. Um, and it was, you know, partially mummified, meaning it had decayed um, a lot, uh, but not totally. And it still had like intact fingers and hands. Um, and the way that they identified him was with a fingerprint expert um, named Raul Figueroa. And he used a technique to soften the fingerprints. They were able to get a match um, and identified this man as uh, Robert Bobby Worley, a.k.a. Bobby Wells. And Bobby Wells was... Um, Basically, he had a record for rape and assaults. Uh, he spent some time in Sing Sing. Uh, he was a heavy drinker. Um, and his brother Fred was trying to help him. But basically, the situation kind of escalated. Um, Bobby assaulted his girlfriend's seven-year-old child. And then, essentially, after that incident, like, disappeared. And that was the last time his family ever saw him. Um, until this this bag was cut open and, and this man was identified um and that's kind of this this legend that the entire drag community is left with of all of these questions because you know the only people who really know what happened for sure of how bobby ended up dead in this garment bag for 15 years are bobby and dorian Corey, and they're both gone um so all we have are just theories um, so there's a lot of different theories out there, um, you know, collected from people who knew her, uh, who knew Bobby, family, friends. Basically, you know, it's it's thought that maybe Bobby had broken in um, and tried to rob her. Mm -hmm. But Dorian, you know, as a as a mature woman and a member of this in this this community where poverty and, and crime are, are rampant, um, she had a gun and she could protect herself. So it's possible that it was like a self-defense type of thing. Um, you know, there was also like this brother Fred had said like that, that, you know, he had made statements insinuating that Bobby was, I guess, trans amorous, you would say, and um, possibly dated Dorian, uh, knew her. Um, but Dorian's friends, like n none of them n remember her dating a Bobby or anything like that. Um, well, because that that that's a really prominent uh, theory amongst uh, other other individuals is that uh, uh, Bobby had sort of a history of being sort of abusive and also abuse against the trans community was really was it, it is really common and was at the time as well. And there was a chance that they had they had had a rendezvous and it was, you know, it, and there, there, there are a lot of theories. I do agree that one holds the least amount of credence based on mm -hmm. what we know from the community at large. Um, <clears throat> but aside from the true crime aspect of this, the, because as much as the, and it is interesting, there are so many podcasts that have done episodes about this exact thing. Mm -hmm. And we will not add a whole lot of new, <laughs> of new, of new theories, but it's also important to remember that, there are there 
the part there is there is a good reason why there well why this this body may have been found in mm-hmm. Dorian's closet. There's absolutely no reason for a queer person in this type of a situation to have called yeah. the police. And one of my one of the other theories is that possibly she was holding the body for a friend mm-hmm. um, because the sisterhood, as we saw on Pose, yep. um, there was an episode on on Pose where they had to like band together because there was a, a John that ended up dead, and um, you know who's suspect number one is the uh, the black trans sex worker that was the last person to see him, even though like I think on the show he died of like a heart attack or something. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think it might have been drug related. I oh, cannot yeah. remember. Yeah. Um, but, like, it just shows you that, like, we could not trust the police and we will protect each other by hiding a body if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's it's either them or us that becomes the body. Um, you know, as as terrible as it is to say, like, like I'm sorry, like, it, sex workers, especially trans and uh, women of color we th- we see this time and time again like they're mur- they're murdered they they're victimized um those crimes go unsolved their uh their their bodies are not uh, well they don't just go unsolved unsolved to make it makes it sound like somebody made an effort to solve it in the first place it yeah. just wasn't solved it was ignored most of the time mm-hmm. and i agree with you i just i i'm i'm i was waving my arms silently like we are not advocating for murder and hiding bodies um but but uh, the sentiment i do agree with that sometimes you have to make a decision to protect your own and in this situation we don't have answers we will never have answers probably mm-hmm. uh because again the like like you said the only people who know the even even the possibility of giving us an answer are no longer with mm-hmm. us but it's an important fact it's it's interesting because the film doesn't deal with it because it wasn't discovered until well after mm-hmm. the film came out so it is interesting through a 2022 lens to watch this and look at this person on the screen who is probably the most prominently featured queen yeah. in the entire film also possibly having this body somewhere in the shot and we mm-hmm. don't even know it's there. And, you know, we would be remiss not to mention like Venus and what happened in the film with, with her murder. Um, and that a heartbreaking scene at the end where Angie extravaganza is basically like learns that she, or, you know, was it was found murdered and, you know, it took a few days to identify her and, basically angie was the one who had to tell her family um that's a whole other story i don't know if you want to kind of get into that one too i mean the the thing i want to focus on there is the fact that this is this community that we're seeing in the film is very tight-knit and but there it's it's also a community of people that knew ultimately you cannot tell other people what to do you cannot control other people's behaviors and uh, the there there's there's a moment where exactly what you said Angie was like you know mm-hmm. she 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 knew how she liked to live her life and um every every girl in the movie who's a working girl knows yeah. that there's always there's there's a risk there's danger and um mm-hmm. the story if 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 you want to tell it I just it's well, it's important to tell, and it's not, it you know, it's not pleasant, but I'll, I'll just keep it really brief. You know, what is important to, to mm-hmm. remember is that Venus uh, existed, was an incredible, incredible performer, um, and lost her life because basically, you know, what is thought is that 
like whatever John she was with, once he learned that she's a trans woman, like this switch flips and they go incredibly violent. And basically, um, she also sp- spoke about another like John who did the same thing like previously and she had to jump out the window. Yeah, that was that that story is because she's she's just laid out on the bed and telling it like she's telling you what she had for lunch that day a little tiny bit, which is Iconic. so yeah. And the that that theory is incredibly credible right it's it's exactly and it's so unfortunate because i think without meaning to the way the film is edited it sort of comes as an afterthought at the end of film of of, of the film that uh venus is no longer with us and um without again without intending to the way that the interviews are edited together, it almost makes it sound like she knew what she was getting into and this is a possible, you know what I mean? Like, it's not quite victim-blaming, but the film just doesn't take a lot of time to get into the story. So it feels, um, again, kind of like an afterthought and also almost like we're, like, well, that's that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that that's what they intended. No. I don't think that that's what they meant. But unfortunately, with the runtime of the film and... Everything else they were trying to get into. The story itself um, is really, it's it's difficult to to take in for that reason. Yeah, no no matter what gender someone is, it doesn't give you the, the permission to strangle somebody. It's, you know, and I think Venus, like, like makes it clear in the documentary exactly her, how her position is about sex work and, and about... Um, like women and how she is really no different than a, like a, a cis white woman who, you know, services her husband when she wants a washer and dryer. Um, <laughs> Can you tell us your, uh, so, so there's, there's another uh, performer, another mm-hmm. cast member of the movie, Octavia St. Laurent, um, who has two moments. We're each going to share a favorite moment. Um, Thank you for so, bringing, bringing up Octavia. I so, mean, what's your favorite moment? Well, for me, it's it's definitely <laughs> the uh, the moment where she's laying there with pictures of Paulina Poroskova, supermodel, all around of her, of the world, and she's kind of talking about how like her dream in life is to be on her level and to be photographed with her, and um, she's just pointing out like <laughs> this this photo. <laughs> she's uh, I look at her here and I see. Uh, wicked beauty i look at her here and i see a little girl type uh i look at her here and i see um just just you know that's the same (laughs) (laughs) i love that part the same and then (laughs) it's she 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 clearly loves uh paulina she's all over her wall and she wanted to be a supermodel a supermodel of the world we even see later in the film she's posing for uh, a, a a cameraman to a, a photographer to get pictures taken, which is again sort of another thing they they pulled from for Pose yeah. with Angel's storyline. Yeah, she and... went to a, like an open casting for models and mm-hmm. stuff. They had that whole thing exactly. And <laughs> um, later in the film, she has this really really excellent <laughs> excellent quote where wait she you have is... to pa- you have to paint the picture. So... <laughs> Because this scene is just legend iconic. Well, well you, you, you start the scene. Um, <laughs> so they're on the beach, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, because there's there's a couple of of quotes. The the quote I'm thinking of is she says, "All men are dogs. Every man, every man. That's mm-hmm. what I think. Every man starts starts barking sooner or later." And I just mm-hmm. thought that was an absolute. Oh 
Sorry, our cat just got so startled. Um, it's an absolutely, uh, just just like the way the way she says it, it's so matter of fact. It's so very, and it's exactly, it's like, yes, that's true. All men are dogs. It's just a matter of time before they start barking. They all start barking eventually. Um, and I love that. And then also the beach moment where. <laughs> the- which, which we, we we quote to each other probably at least weekly, I'd say. Um <laughs> I there's there's just this beautiful moment where where the the wind is blowing and she goes oh I feel just as free as the wind on this beach <laughs> and then, and then someone she off has camera this shady friend who's like you still got that voice though <laughs> oh god and it's just it's 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 another one of those really really great moments of the in the film where there are individuals who we know have this history this life that has brought a lot of difficulty, a lot of sadness, just having joyful queer human moments. Because again, so often queer stories in fiction in particular are often sad tragedies of murder, mayhem, drugs, and disease. And those are all a part of the tapestry of people's life story within the queer community. And also queer people queer BIPOC people they they live they love they breathe and the movie does a the film does an interesting job of tying a lot of that together with an hour and a half runtime so there's so much missing there's so much that doesn't get talked about Mm -hmm. but there's a there's a really good like through line throughout the film of individuals living their lives in this beautiful happy way and that's one of those intricate scenes that has nothing to do with ballroom. It has nothing to do with the the focus of the film. It's just another scene that showcases uh, the 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 full tapestry of this human. Can I tell you uh, one of my biggest like obsessions slash fascinations from this film? And Please. It is those two young boys at the beginning <laughs> of the film. I, I, and I'm just like, you can hear like how worried I am about them in my voice. This is a perfect, oh a perfect, God. probably, probably segue into come, coming in for a landing on this one. Well, they bookend the film. Exactly. And we, they're the first ones we see and the last ones we see in the film because they're just so sweet and pure and like. They're just, like 13 and 14 years old. And, and they're, they're not named. We don't know. We don't know anything about them um, other than they're in the city at two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And one's in a blue shirt and one's in a white tank top and a hat. And they're just talking about like, like, you know, I'm out here and like, they're like, well, why aren't you home? Like, why aren't you with your, your mother? And he's like, I don't have a mother. Well, why aren't you with your father? I don't have he's a father. He's gone. Yeah. Where do you live? With a friend. Like, and, um you can see like they're like so tired because it's two thirty in the morning, but they're also just like out here hanging out because they, that's where they, that's the community that they feel safe with. Um, I did look into, I just did some very quick searching to find out like what happened to them. Cause I, I know a lot of other people were curious about that too. Um, but I didn't really find a lot. Um, <laughs> I found like a YouTube video where the the narrator was saying like he did find the boy in blue. Um, he was currently living in New York, um, but he was thankful for like the 
support he's received from being in the film, but ultimately this YouTuber did not get permission to say his name or like use his, his image. Um, but you know, I found some like other just quick Reddit search kind of threads that were just like <laughs> kind of kind of disheartening. It's like clearly they're hustlers, right? Like clearly they're also sex workers. Um, so you know, it's possible that they like had a dark fate, and we just don't know like their their full story. Some people are like, yeah, they're probably dead. Um, they're like, what did I say? I was like, they're just. They're, they're just two lambs surrounded by, like, wolves, basically. Like, and, oh my gosh, I would love to know, like, what what became of them? If anybody has any information, please write in. We would love to know. Because the thing, the thing about, I think, like, bookending the film with these two individuals was a very interesting choice. Because, as an audience member, your brain goes to, you are so young. I work with children, so my brain goes to, ooh, like adult supervision. Kids are kids are going to do what they want to do, but being out and about this late in a city like New York in the in the eighties, um, your your immediate reaction is like, oh, I hope there's someone to protect you. I hope that I hope there's someone off camera we don't see who is actually here in like in your corner, um, and the choice. The I, I think there was this like softness to them, this really sweet, lovely softness to their interview that I thought they, they think that maybe as they were editing this all together, they thought would be a really good bookend on the beginning and the end of the film. But watching it through a 2022 lens with what we now really know about what was going on behind the scenes in New York City, it's true where it sort of leaves this almost dark kind of mystery to the ending. Why were they there? What were they up to? And yeah, who, I almost want to like look into this. This could be a whole podcast like research series. Oh, of absolutely. Its own. Like, who are those boys? What happened to them? Um, I'm doing a bad job like like naming my source here, but the the YouTuber that I saw, um, you know, did answer the, some questions or asked this this boy in blue some questions, and and he said that uh, the he doesn't know what happened to the boy in white. Um, that they were a couple at the time that they mm-hmm. were filming. And that they were hustlers. Can you also tell me when, when, when did this interview happen? Because the YouTuber, um, because YouTube's only been around since 2006. So, uh, like 2005, 2006. So I'm, I'm curious to know when they heard from this individual. Um, and so I just clicked the first YouTube video that I could find. The title is Paris is burning. The two kids, where are they? (laughs) Where are they now? 20, 2021. So they would be fully grown adults right now. Um, so when he was interviewing him, was he interviewing him as an adult? Or was he? In, or was yeah. this an interview from farther, from longer ago? Yeah, it, like, it made it sound like he did track down the, the, the one in blue, the 13-year-old. Okay. Who was in living as, in New York at the time, like living in a full life and, and became an adult and everything. Um, but that he did not really keep keep in touch with the boy in white um and doesn't know what happened to him um but that they you know just lived this this way like that was like a an average night for them yeah and 
it's it, the the film also does so we didn't even really really spend a lot of time talking about ball culture and like <laughs> like uh, uh but the film does this interesting thing where it's it's sliding all of these other facets of queer life in uh in large cities and the history surrounding all of it is really based in uh, wanting to create a space uh, a place where you belong a space where you feel like you have some power, some control, and it's it's this really someone's hot rodding out there. It's this really fascinating slice of life in this in this in this documentary, and to kind of bring us in for a close because we are coming up on that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would suggest watching this film for no other reason if to give yourself a jumping off point for other areas of exploration and research to do within queer subcultures, because a lot of the things that we now know because of shows like Pose and RuPaul's Drag Race and uh, to, to a lesser extent legendary on HBO max, because that's a premium service. um, There are a lot of, there are a lot of, of things that, that we can learn from these, these very, very important cultural moments in the past. And, taking some time to oh yeah and also um uh lady bunny's documentary i was um, trying to remember the name of it wigstock um, is it wigstock yeah that's another really good documentary um, as well wigstock um about kind of this drag kind of uh like festival performance festival and there's a lot of performers and, and trans um people that are featured on that documentary as well um so, so check that out so there's Wigstock 1995, which which came out, and that's that's sort of a documentary and a musical. And then there is the there's also a documentary which is called Wig. The documentary Wig. is called Wig. That's the um, one I'm talking about. The, it's Neil Patrick Harris's documentary yep. about Wigstock. And and the one I'm talking about has Lady Bunny in it, but it's more of a uh, fictionalized version of Wigstock. It's it's uh it's it's um it's like Wigstock as a show. Um. And they have, so, so there are a lot of different jumping off points. I also suggest watching the film, uh, the, the Netflix docuseries uh, Disclosure uh, with Laverne Cox and many other prominent trans individuals in the United States talking about how uh, coming out as trans is different than coming out as queer in a lot of ways because there's uh, the, the term disclosure is that you have to disclose something about yourself that mm-hmm. is not apparent on the surface and always apparent on the surface, I should say. It's a really interesting series. It also talks about transphobia in media throughout basically our entire life history. Um, there are also... Uh, there's also the documentary The Queen, which I talked about, which talks about Crystal LaBeja, who was one of the co-founders of the ballroom scene. Name off a couple more. Oh, my gosh. You got a couple? Well, you can watch this documentary. It's called RuPaul's Drag Race. Ah, uh, yes, RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, <laughs> it's many years, many years in the making now. Uh, just just watch queer films. Like, there's movies that, that, are, that are amazing. Uh, the Edge of Seventeen is one of my favorite queer films. Um, Goddamn, even just uh, Fire Island that, that just came out. I'm going to stop hitting your mic. It's okay. Even Fire Island that just came out, um, you know, with, with Bowen and, uh, and Joel Kim Booster. Like, like you know, we've, we've appreciated any queer film from across the spectrum from the stupidest, stupidest thing. Uh, another another gay, gay movie. movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> just the just the the most delightful dumb campy romp. There's a documentary about the artist Robert Maplethorpe. Mm. If you want to see some wild shit, <laughs> some wild S and M photography. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot out there, and Paris is Burning doesn't have to be your only jumping off point. But uh, for to close out this Pride Month. As we come to a close, there's there's just there there are ways for you to enjoy and engage with queer things. If you're looking for something a little, maybe a little bit more gritty, a little bit more like getting getting into the nitty gritty. So there's a lot of ways. There's a big spectrum, just like gender and sexuality. Yes, and I uh, just wanted to kind of take this moment as we kind of close close out here um, to say thank you so much for having me. Um, I am so honored to be a part of this podcast in specific, Um, and uh, I'm so proud of you um, as your partner, and I'm so proud of Austin as well um, for putting this podcast out um, and just continuing to be a a, a voice in the queer community. Um, I have watched you kind of be a, a representative of our community um, every single day, um, you you live as a as a, a non-binary uh, individual, queer individual out there um, in the world, working as a as a music teacher and as a, a dance teacher. Even I was in the pool with you this morning at a water aerobics, and you had these people dancing to Kim Petrus, to Tegan and Sarah. Our list was um, so gay today, y'all. <laughs> oh my god! And not just that, like, honey, I. I am so proud of you, and I'm just so proud to call you my partner. Um, for and and I'm so proud of of Shim Sham of as well for just being Miss Mama, <laughs> being strong voices in the queer community. We need that. Um, so you know anybody listening out there, I just encourage you to to do the same thing. Um, if you're if you're living queer, be as loud and proud as you can, um, and just continue to <laughs> educate those around you. <laughs> Because um, this world really needs it. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. That was so sweet. And you know, it's uh, it's it's important for those of us with a little bit of uh, a little bit of extra to find ways to give back to the community and also continue to find ways to progress. And uh, Shim Shem and I do find it really important, even if we're just talking about something as just like mundane as like the. I don't know the the cultural impact of Karen Walker. I don't know. <laughs> it, like we 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 really do want to focus in on things that we feel very strongly about. And again, if you have things that you want us to talk about, if you have things that you would like to share, stories you would like us to put out there, or uh, organizations and people who are out there doing doing the damn thing, please write into us. We would love to hear from you. And again, check out our list of resources down in the. Uh, show notes and of course we have to end with our cheers here we go ready ready slancha <laughs> slancha <laughs> we do a different day now <laughs> <laughs> it's alright you were so excited